Hi, I'm Jason Wacob, founder and co-CEO of MindBuddyGreen and your host for the MindBuddyGreen podcast, where I'll be bringing you deep and insightful dialogues with some of the greatest minds in wellness. If you like what you hear, please consider giving us a five-star review and comment. And don't forget to visit us at mindbuddygreen.com for your daily dose of wellness and make sure to check out all of our great offerings, including our online classes and trainings. Thanks and enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Olesa Pindak, Mind Body Green's Chief Content Officer. Today I'm excited to welcome South Bronx native, urban revitalization consultant, and real estate developer Majora Carter to the podcast. Her 2006 TED Talk on revitalizing the South Bronx has been viewed over 2 million times, and Majora's expertise, empathy, and drive to encourage others to become their own champions is truly inspiring. Majora, welcome to the Mind Body Green podcast. Thank you for having me. Before we get into the issues of urban renewal and environmentalism and all the issues that we want to talk about, I'd love to go back. Let's go back to the beginning. Let's talk about you. Um, you grew up in the South Bronx, one of 10 children. Yes. Is that right? <laughs> the youngest of 10. Wow. Can mm-hmm. you tell us a little bit about what that was like? Uh, it was a big house uh, or full house. <laughs> it wasn't very big. It was only three bedrooms, but that's okay. Um, and... Uh, it was really interesting because of the time I grew up, um, my early, early years were just, I mean, quite idyllic, believe it or not. Um, it was it was a big full house with lots of visitors all the time. Um, and, uh, you know, I loved having my parents and my friends and people on my block. But things started to change for me around, I think, for the entire community when I was about seven you know, I think that's when I started noticing things such as, you know, both buildings on either side of my family, of, of my uh, block, the ends of it, they both were burned down um, mm-hmm. as a result of landlords torching their buildings because that was around the time of huge financial disinvestment in the community, um, in, the, in the city, rather, around the country in poor neighborhoods. And so they were torching their buildings in order to collect insurance money and that just left people gone. You know, that was at the beginning of, of that summer. Um, and then at the end of the summer, my brother, my favorite brother, <laughs> was actually mm-hmm. killed as a result of the drug wars. You know, and this was someone who'd been in two tours of Vietnam, came home, and then was gone. And, and you know, and, and that's when I started noticing my neighborhood and, you know, nearby neighborhoods being featured on the nightly news as these, like, awful, awful places that just would, were it were filled with nothing except pimps and pushers and prostitutes. And it really was sort of shocking to me because that wasn't my experience, uh, at least not before then. And suddenly it was. And it was a really kind of difficult thing for me. And, I, it, and it was one of those moments where I feel like that's when I started planning my escape because even though there was still love in my house and love of people in the community, it was just like, this place is bad and there's there's something wrong and I want to be gone. The way you're describing it, it almost sounds like it happened overnight, like it was one summer. I'm sure it wasn't that abrupt, but can you speak to a little bit about what was going on? What made that change? Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. It, no, it definitely was not overnight. It just in my like little six <laughs> and course, seven year right. old mind, it was like, what just it's happened here? Yes, it, yeah. exactly. But um. You know, again, it was during the time of 
huge financial disinvestment in America. It was like we had we're going through a really big financial crisis at the time, and the kind of you know financial resources that went into cities. I mean, it was around the time when President Ford told New York City to drop dead. Literally, it was on the front page of like every newspaper. Like I remember that, mm-hmm. and it was all about the fact that they weren't there was no going to be no real federal support to go to these cities, in particular in New York. But there were plenty around the country that had, were feeling the same exact thing. Mm-hmm. And um, so it was this era of financial disinvestment from cities. People were moving out of them. And, and there were, it was just like there was this thing, ether going on that things were dying. At least urban areas were dying. Mm-hmm. And when you looked at the numbers, it was kind of true. We, in the Bronx alone, you know, we lost about 60% of our population. Um, and uh, in part, you know, to the, the arson that we experienced, um, you know, in part of the fact that there was, you know, since there were no financial resources going into those communities, and so landlords and, and buildings owners, if you couldn't get a mortgage or a loan, there was definitely redlining, and banks were not investing in those areas either. So mm-hmm. they would take their businesses, you know, where they'd either go to right-to-work states or overseas. So right. these were places that actually had lots of light manufacturing, the job creators in those places, and they were gone. My neighborhood alone was known as Little Pittsburgh for mm-hmm. a long time because we did so much steel mm-hmm. and um, steel fabrication. And uh, then it was just, they were just these big open buildings that were just left and it, was, it felt like a ghost town going down into those areas but and you know and it was very lonely in the community too because there were huge whole streets that were essentially just the shells of the of the buildings and everything else had been burned down and uh, it was a really kind of crazy place to be but you know it was what it was and I knew we weren't alone but it certainly again in, in my mind like this is just the end of the world. Mm-hmm. And of course, I got to get out. Mm-hmm. One thing that you said is that economic degradation begets environmental degradation begets social degradation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that happened and why, how you watched that happening? Yeah, so that financial... Um, that financial degradation, you know, really came about as the the, the financial sort of shutdowns and things that we experienced, you know, within, the, within urban areas around the country. But it was interesting. So again, if we had once had a walk-to-work community where people would literally walk into the industrial area and go to a job um, that was enough to feed a family, when that didn't happen, those those areas still were there. Those great big buildings were still there with nothing in them. And, and it became the kind of place where it was easier to put the kind of environmentally burdensome facilities that were there that, you know, in some cases need in order for a city to function. But depending on where they are, they either function well or, or badly. Mm-hmm. And uh, one thing that we've noticed around the world is that the poorer and the darker a community or country or a city is, that's where you'll find that there are more environmentally burdensome and noxious ways of doing business in those areas. That's just statistically. Mm-hmm. And um, it was pretty clear, I think, even before anybody even knew it was happening, suddenly things like sewage sludge pelletizing plants that actually never operated well since the day they were built. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, more waste facilities that were clustered, you know, in this in these areas. Um, then, you know, people even didn't even know what was going on. But then we also noticed, you know, years later, that there were issues such as, um, uh, you know, higher rates of respiratory issues such as asthma, you know, right. happening. Um, the fact that there were truck routes that were designed not to support, you know, the keeping communities safe from from 
great big trucks, which you know should not be on residential streets. There was no attention paid to mm-hmm. how those truck routes were actually created in order to keep them away from local residential communities. And so seeing that kind of stuff was just like, huh, you know, why is it happening here and not in other places like that? And for me, you know, I can't say at the time, you know, when I was planning my escape starting at seven years old, you know, <laughs> I wasn't thinking about anything like that. Right. And um, I had a plan to use my education to get out. I was a smart kid. I knew mm-hmm. it. And I was going to get myself into the Bronx High School of Science, which I did. And then I was going to use that to go to what I called a name school, Mm -hmm. a name college, because it had to have a name that people would recognize. Because even (laughs) at seven, I understood status. And and I'm like, you know what, I need to, I need to go to one of those. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was just so crazy. But you know, I did. And I didn't look back, Mm -hmm. except that's where I lived. And I had to go home to visit my parents because you know, I didn't have anything else to do. And also, my mother was an incredible cook. So (laughs) that was really helpful. I did not learn any of that from her, unfortunately. (laughs) But um, it was a really interesting, you know, kind of crazy making place for me because here I was, you know, aching to like, take the stain of being from a place like the South Bronx away from me by the covering it, you know, with the, with the beauty of education mm-hmm. and, uh, and culture that I was learning. But then I was, you know, the other part of me was like, this is where I'm from. And I have to, I'll admit, I was absolutely ashamed of it because it was like, you'd say you're from the South Bronx and people would look at you funny. And, and so I would like figure out ways to say, not say it. Hmm. Yeah. But you yeah. did come back. I had, yeah, I did, but not because was I that? wanted to. <laughs> not at all. So, what brought you back? What mm. was the, um, what was the catalyst? Um, I got into NYU, and I needed a cheap place to stay. As I could barely, if I did take out a stu- major student loans to go, but it didn't cover a place to live. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm didn't it was, I was, was not going to have like the cool you know Manhattan loft of my dreams this <laughs> <laughs> wasn't going to happen not at that time anyway but you know my old bedroom that my mother did turn it into a sewing room was just like it was it was still available and I moved back in, into it mm-hmm. and it did it felt like such a horrible defeat um even though I did use the sewing machine that my mother set up in there because <laughs> um, I love sewing too um but it was really horrifying for a time um, you know, at that point, most of the buildings had actually been built back up again, and people were living in them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember leaving my house at, you know, before, before, often before the sun came up, you know, to get down, you know, to, to school or to work or wherever I was going. And then, you know, I wouldn't come back home until, like, most people had gone to bed. Mm-hmm. And because I just had nothing there was nothing that interested me and the community didn't think there was anything Mm -hmm. and um and that went on for a couple of years and then I discovered you know actually through work um a man named Stephen Sapp who was actually a founder of this place that he kept talking about and it was like this arts community it was really awesome and I was like fascinated by this (laughs) because I was like I'm an artist you know I write and um (laughs) <laughs> and I come to find out that this place was literally two blocks away from my house. No way. And I was like, what? And I don't know why I didn't make the connection. It took me at least six months to make mm-hmm. the connection. And then I remember walking in and just being just beautifully bombarded with like all of these creative, fabulous people. And I was like, oh my 
God, I'm home. And it was just, and it just suddenly, it just changed everything for me. And, uh, but that's, you know, so that was like just heavenly. It really was. And bridging your worlds. Yeah. Yeah. To like know that there were people in my own community who were Mm -hmm. artists and who were creative and who just like loved being together and building this incredible community Mm -hmm. um, around the arts that just really made me go, okay, I'm cool. Um, (laughs) You know, I co-founded a film festival. It just, uh, you know, I certainly did my own, you know, spoken word or gosh, it was, I was probably very annoying. Um, (laughs) But, uh, you know, I had a great time and, you know, just some of the amazing um, artists and dancers like Arthur Avila's, um, you know, Crazy Legs, and mm-hmm. just like, just hip hop was like such a <laughs> central part, you know, yeah. of the community. And it was just all up in there. It was great. But then that's when we got word that the city was planning on building another huge waste facility on our waterfront. And, and I didn't even know that they were there. Mm-hmm. And but when you realize what was there and what the city and the and the state's plan for building another one was because they were going to close down Fresh Kills, which was which was, uh, you know, our uh, the New York City's landfill. Basically, right. it was never designed to be a landfill, but that's what it became. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was like, oh, my gosh, like if we think the truck traffic we're experiencing now is bad. Um, and if we think that the asthma rates that we are dealing with now are, are bad, if we're feeling like just the impact of having a community that is not designed for people mm-hmm. or is not intended in its current use to be for people, but it's more about the the being the repository for waste that mostly wealthier and whiter communities can afford to avoid, what is that saying to like everybody and everything in our communities? And you know, and that's when. I realized I could either, you know, do what I was going to continue to do, which was, you know, take my education. And, you know, I had this great plan where I was going to write the great American novel and then <laughs> turn it into the great American screenplay and, uh, you know, direct and produce it and, you know, have a small but, you know, significant role in it myself. And, you yeah. know, then, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> I was going to, that was my path. Yeah. So I, I thought, and, uh, and I was like, okay, I could do that, or I could actually be a part of what's happening here. And and it was a really, it, 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 it wasn't a hard decision at all. It mm-hmm. really wasn't. It was just like, no, this, I've, I've like learned to love my community and I want to be a part of the change that's going to help make it not just survive, but thrive. Mm-hmm. So when is it that environmentalism came into it? Was it with the waste facility or was it um, something else that you began to notice the green spaces and wanting to encourage more of that and wanting to see more of that in your community? It was definitely wanting, you know, to impact, you know, the quality of life of people in my community and knowing that, you know, the continued concentration of all these waste facilities was, was going to run counter to that. But what really got me... My, my juice is flowing, was really thinking about not what we wanted to be fighting against, but what kind of community do we actually want? And I think that's where the creative part of me just was like front mm-hmm. and center, which yeah. it always is. But in that regard, it was just like, you know, we could fight against everything. And the thing is, like, and I think it was from talking, you know, to folks who were really clear about, you know, they just wanted 
a decent life, a decent quality of life. Like nobody was asking for anything crazy. It was just like, you know, it'd be great for our kids to have a great place to play. Um, we have to leave the neighborhood for that. It's like, I don't want them going to these like crazy parks that are like walled off and that we know or just like nothing good happens in them because they're like secluded and closed down. It's just awful. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we'd like to have the streets like be safer um, in terms of, you know, not having like crazy trucks run up and down them. You know, we wanted, it'd be really great if they were like jobs, you know, within our own community that actually made us feel like we could actually work in our own neighborhood. And uh, and I was like, oh, okay, so that's cool. And uh, and that's, and it, so it was always like in like gnawing around the edges of my mind, well, what does that mean? Like, uh, what, what can we do? And what was really beautiful um, was that uh, I, so even though, yeah, I was definitely working on the, uh, for helping produce a more sustainable solid waste management plan that the city could take on, but Ultimately, what happened is it came in the form of this really lovely woman named Jenny Hoffner, who worked um, with, uh, at the time, uh, New York City Parks Department through some kind of grant from the U.S. Forest Service, and they were working specifically to tr- in urban areas to help people like understand the impact of threatened urban waterways and how do you support them more because they're you know mm-hmm. natural there they should be, and um, and of course in New York City. There was the Bronx River, which is the only true freshwater um, river in all of New York City. So I was like, oh, I okay. didn't know that. I know. It's kind of <laughs> fascinating. And the funny thing is, like, I knew there was a Bronx River. I could mm-hmm. see it on a subway map. Like, there is a Bronx River Parkway. But the river was not ever something that was living and organic to me or anything like that, which I think to most people. And... Um, and so this lady kept coming and visiting and calling and just saying, look, there's this, there's this seed grant program. Maybe you should consider, um, you know, actually applying for it. And I was just like, I remember thinking she's really nice. I had no idea what she was talking about, but it was like she clearly doesn't know. And then that's when I um, I'd go running with my dog, and and I remember walk going past in the industrial section to go to a park like a mile away on the other side of the river. So it wasn't like I didn't see the river. I had to pack over a bridge, but it was something that was so inaccessible and foreign it was just like yeah I pass over it but it's not like anything you know Mm -hmm. of you know that actually could impact anybody's lives but one time my dog literally pulled me into this dump and that I'd pass all the time but this time she decided we're gonna go down there and she's 80 pounds and so we went down there (laughs) and and we went through this like I mean, it was just, I mean, it was, if I didn't have a crazy 80 pound dog with me, <laughs> there is no way I would have gone in there by myself because it was literally like there were moments when like you couldn't see the sky because it was just like so much junk and it had like kind of grown in over <laughs> itself. And I was like, this is disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> and, but when you went through the whole thing, there was the river and it was like six o'clock in the morning and the sunlight was glinting off mm. of it. And it was just like, oh my God. Like, we actually have, and I could get, I mean, if I wanted to, I could walk into it. I'm like, get out of here. And it was amazing. And that's, you know, then I turned back and walked through that crap again. But um, it was so awesome because I realized that's the beginning of our restoration. That is the beginning of our community's revitalization. We're going to clean that thing up. We're going to turn it into something awesome. And, and I have to and say, that was Hunts Point. That was the Hunts Point Riverside <laughs> Park. And the funny thing is, is that there were plenty of folks, um, you know, that we were able to get on board just probably because of like my sheer just like we can do this kind of thing uh, but others were just like we have a lot of other problems like why are you doing this this is there's education there's this there's that blah 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 mm-hmm. and I'm like yeah true 
I'm not saying that that's not, but I'm saying this is what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe we can all work together or maybe not, but, you know, great. And I think one of the most glorious things that happened was, at least early on, was that there were plenty of groups that didn't believe that it was a good idea, mm-hmm. but they just decided to leave me alone. They didn't actually <laughs> oppose me. And it was just like, you know what? Fine. I'll see you on the other side. And and so it really was kind of beautiful. Like the first time we sort of opened up the park, um, you know, just as a, a beta version, because it, it was mm-hmm. not very, <laughs> it was really. <laughs> but you could see the sky? You could see the sky. You could see the sky. You could see the water. We um, actually had like wood chips and most of the, the most of it, you know, we did like, a, we had the city, city department of transportation came down and actually, you know, laid down an asphalt path for us mm-hmm. so that like any like, people of all abilities could actually go through it because before that they could not. It was mm-hmm. impossible. And, you know, and we actually got um, a fire hydrant, you know, installed there and so we could actually had a sprinkler system so we had a water feature (laughs) (laughs) um yeah so between the canoe rides you know that we had a mural done up there it was just like you know I personally hand painted um all these these uh, these uh circles all over the the corrugated uh steel walls that were (laughs) on other side on either side of it because it was actually a map city street it was supposed to be another bridge and there you go, built. bringing your art back into it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And those were easy to do. And I, I met um, the ladies of the evening that would often frequent that place down there. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was just, and I'd invite them to come out to the party. <laughs> I love Everyone's back. welcome. Exactly. And it was just, and they, you know, and it was just like, wow, no one's invited us to anything. I'm like, yeah. well, there you go. Um, <laughs> they didn't come, but that's okay. Yeah, well, that's fine. So it sounds like you met with some resistance, but more people saying, okay, fine, give it a shot. Yeah. But how is it that you got people to help you out? How is it that you got the people that you were able to convince to come along when you're, when you say there are other things that people are saying, there's education, there's food, there's, there are more pressing matters here yeah. than this Riverside Park. Right. How do you get people to get behind you and, and is it something that they connected to or is it something that you had to connect some dots for them? Yeah, definitely. It was a combination of all those things because you do have to, like, number one, inspire people to actually take your word. You know, like, look, if we do this, this is actually going to be the kind of thing that makes not only folks from outside our community, but people inside our community see our community as something valuable. Like, we have to create these kind of spaces that make folks go, oh, yeah, like, this is worth caring about. Like, mm-hmm. we, are, by association, we are worth caring about, too. Um, and then the other piece was just, like, you know, do doing the work so that folks see that you're all in, too. Like, you know, nobody worked as hard as I did. Mm-hmm. And folks, I think, saw that. And it was just kind of like, huh, well, maybe we shouldn't leave Majora right down there by ourselves. <laughs> and I swear, to, I really do think that was part of it. But, you know, ultimately, it was just, you know, it was such a crazy kind of idea. Mm-hmm. that I think there were those who were just like, you know what, I don't get it either, but maybe I'm going to see. I'm, I'm going to stick around because I'd like to see it firsthand. I do really think that that was some of it. Mm-hmm. Just like, you know, I didn't know what was going to happen down there, but I just felt like she's all in and I don't get it, but we're going to see. And once the park came to fruition, were people then interested in what you were up to next? Yeah. And was there, was there kind of a groundswell with... Once people saw some success, once they saw, oh, look what could happen. Yeah. Now let's see. Oh, now it was we're on board. Amazing. So, that, so there was the beta version of the park, which wasn't that great, but it was 
great compared mm-hmm. to what was there before. And then years later, we were able to get a $3 million appropriation from the city. And, and then it became, it was just gorgeous. It was a national award-winning park, the whole shebang. And it's just, it was amazing. But what was really interesting, and this is why I knew this was super successful, there was one time I was I was traveling, I think I was in, I'm sure I was in California, actually. And um, and I got, someone sent me uh, a, a news report that our park was vandalized. And it was like a big deal. Mm-hmm. And it was just someone literally had come in and painted over all the surfaces, which is like not even artful graffiti. It was just like stupid. And there I was, I was working with a client and I couldn't, you know, because I'm thinking, oh, I need to like deal with the park commissioner. I need to do this and I need to do that. And mm-hmm. it was like, this just could not be. And I didn't have time. Like seriously, like I was on somebody else's time and dime. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I really couldn't do anything. And but I'm just like horrified. And I get back to another news story, it's like four days later, and it was amazing because the this news story just showed people just going, this was unacceptable. Like, we are not gonna stand for this. And so by the time I got back, that entire park had been cleaned up. Wow. And I never saw like, <laughs> any of it. And it was just like, and I did nothing. I did nothing. Well, was, you did a lot. Well, just. no, but, <laughs> but you know what but I mean? But you got those people yeah, to get to the point like, where they cared that much. Exactly. Yeah. And I was like, okay, I'm done. Like, seriously, this yeah. this is a self-sustaining kingdom, Exactly. You know? yeah. And it was one of the most, it was one of the proudest moments of my entire life. Oh. I have to say. Yeah, it really was. <laughs> one of the things that you said that I love is nobody should have to move out of their neighborhood to live in a better one. Mm-hmm. I'm particularly interested in this because I think gentrification can be a bit of a tough word mm-hmm. right now. And um, you talk about self-gentrification. Can you tell us a little bit more about how a community changes without losing the people that make it what it is? Yeah. You know, when I look back on the my early days in the South Bronx, especially, you know, my shameful ones and or how I felt ashamed by being from there, you know, I realized that that's so common, you know, to in, in, in America's low status communities. And by low status, I mean, those neighborhoods, you know, where there are more environmental burdens, where there are higher rates of, of poverty, um, you know, lower educational attainment, you know, higher um, rates of, of, you know, lifestyle related health conditions, mm-hmm. um, you know, definitely higher rates of people being involved in the in the criminal justice system. And it's interesting that it covers over all colors of communities. It's just I've been in cold country where everybody's white and mm-hmm. those kind of things are the same exact thing. So it's a really kind of fascinating thing. But what is common to all of those places is that there's there's talented ones in those neighborhoods all the time. They're born and raised there, but each and every one of them are expected to leave. And so I look back on my own youth and it was just like from like the time I was a little, little kid, you know, I was able to read by the time I was four, like literally like big books and I have a four-year-old that's impressive yeah (laughs) and so it was just sort of like wow she's gonna grow up and be somebody and I remember things like that you Mm -hmm. know it's just like and but it's like wow she's gonna grow up and she's gonna get out of here and she's gonna make us proud yeah and it was just like we're taught to measure success by how far we get away from those communities that Mm -hmm. is that is conditioned into us Mm -hmm. and so of course that's how I felt I'm Mm -hmm. like duh and so when you think about it that that way it's like well what happens to the people that are left behind Mm -hmm. one and then and so but why are we assuming that those neighborhoods cannot be designed to to actually retain the talent that's in them or are we actually designing those neighborhoods to repel the talent that's there and I would think and no one I know within my every fiber of my body 
and mind and spirit that we actively create those communities that kind of stay in those talent repulsion stat status. And and I just thought, no, that's just not how we're going to do it. And but the thing is, so I don't think gentrification actually starts to happen when you start to see, you know, white people in a formally, you know, exclusive community of color, or when you they see things like doggy daycares or coffee shops. It, that no, mm-hmm. that happens was way way later. Gentrification starts to happen when we start to tell people that those communities have no real value, and that the people that are considered the talented ones will leave. And that's when gentrification happens, when we start telling those folks that, you know, that nothing in those neighborhoods from the property to the people are worth anything, that's when it's easy to happen. Mm-hmm. And so, so and we see it in really interesting ways. I mean, some just, and it's so blatant, and I can't understand why people don't understand this just yet. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact when you start getting, when you start seeing those signs, we'll buy your house for cash. Mm-hmm. They're buying it for cash and t- for two reasons. One, they know the value, and they know you don't. <laughs> and yeah. and people are just kind of like, but what? Because our ex- our expectations of our own neighborhoods are so low that we think we're getting over when somebody comes in and goes, oh, I'll pay you cash for your house right now. And because they think that it's not worth anything, they're like, oh, I just, this, what a sucker. They're like, no, that's not the way that it works. Mm-hmm. And we have it in this country, unfortunately, where the, I think the, the nonprofit industrial complex and, you know, government doesn't see fit to kind of support those people in those communities to see the value of their own property. And then we wonder why, you know, the wealth gap between, um, Black and black and Latino folks and white folks, or you know, even poor white folks and wealthier ones, is as high as it is. Much of it has to do with the fact that we've hemorrhaged our own property, mm-hmm. hemorrhaged it over the past. Um, uh, well, it's never been all that great for for, for people of color, but um, you know, I think you can definitely see it in some of the stats that have been coming out recently. And so when we look at that, we're like, we yes, our communities are getting gentrified, but the role that we've played and not being educated about financial matters of, of um, land value and use and the way communities actually develop and real estate itself has actually been to our detriment. Mm-hmm. So self-gentrification yeah. is um, what, you know, it's a phrase that I did not make it up, but I learned it from uh, Dr. Carter, who is a former president of Johnson C. Smith University, which is a historically black college down mm-hmm. in Charlotte, North Carolina. And so Johnson C. Smith University is actually a really good engineering school known for that. And um, they know that the town with, that it rests in, you know, right outside the, the walls, and it's, it's like a, a pretty elite university down there, um, was very, very poor. And they noticed that even the kids that were from that community that would go to the school would never, like, go back to that neighborhood. And so Dr. Carter and some financial institutions and some community folks were in the town were just like, we have to do something about this. And so they created this really awesome um, project where there was financial um Supports for people to open their own businesses, do real estate development, but it was for the people in the community. And there were some folks who immediately had that like knee jerk reaction that everybody, well, not everybody, but a lot of people have to the idea of gentrification. It's like, oh, you're going to gentrify us out of it, mm-hmm. out of our own neighborhoods. And, and he was like, no, actually, all of this is for this community. If anything, 
this is self-gentrification because you're the ones actually benefiting from it, not some predatory speculator who's coming in and flipping your properties. Mm-hmm. And they were it's just, and, and it's working. And, and so I was like, oh, what an interesting idea, self-gentrification. Because, of course, you know, frankly, we want nice things, too, in our own community. Why don't we want to do the development? Why don't we want to develop the businesses? Why don't we want the kind of neighborhoods that we're delighted to raise our kids in? Mm-hmm. Isn't that what anybody wants? Uh. And <laughs> I was just like, Ugh. So, yeah, to me, that's what it really means. So we talked a little bit about your... Um, more activist roots and getting this waterfront um, park started and um, really engaging the community there. And your more recent work has more to do with real estate development. Mm -hmm. I think even in hearing the way that you're talking and that you're clearly looking at real estate and looking at communities and thinking about a larger plan um, that you start to see those, how that leap happened. Um, But can you speak to that a little bit more and why you think that real estate is such an important piece of developing communities and um, and what what's usually done and the way that you want to see things done yeah I don't know who's who made that quote um, you know our relationships are based on real estate but <laughs> it's kind of it's true um, and the way that you know I've noticed you know especially coming from a background where it was sustainability and environmentalism like you you sometimes if you're like very sort of focused and and have the tunnel vision you feel that that's the only thing that you're looking at but then you realize I do is like put the blinders off a little bit and you realize, oh, there's so much more there. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when I realized that, no, this is a real estate issue. Mm-hmm. Because and especially if you look at low status communities, they really are only developed in two ways. They're either developed um, where you, the typical kind of gentrification thing where suddenly, and it's not sudden, you know, as I mentioned, um, you know, all of a sudden this place like goes from being like this sort of sort of busted up, you know, community that, you know, everybody considers the ghetto, it could, but it also could be a white former manufacturing town um, or a Native American reservation. But they're still low status, right? And then either they get gentrified in a very typical way, or the other kind is what we call poverty level economic maintenance. Mm -hmm. And those are the kind of things where you'll see instead of, you know, banks or credit unions, you'll see check cashing stores and pawn shops and, you know, the kind of places that extract your money and don't actually give you any, no, no bearing to actually build it. Um, Or um, the the schools definitely aren't as good. Mm -hmm. Um, You'll find, you know, not a diverse way to get food in your community Mm -hmm. so you won't have good grocery stores and restaurants and stuff like that instead you'll have like maybe a corner store that sells some some you know some some produce that you probably don't want and the grocery stores really aren't that great Mm -hmm. um and you'll find lots of very highly subsidized affordable housing and affordable for the for the lowest lowest income levels almost exclusively and you know and there are people who are like and and i listen to them crowing about affordable housing and you know and i'll see some of these folks getting awards from you know community groups and I'm just like y'all don't know like they're not doing this because they like poor people there's so much financial incentives and subsidies that they get to do this kind of crappy housing but mm-hmm. hey you know and I keep trying to tell people that you know mm-hmm. they don't do it out of the kindness of their hearts you know they just don't yeah. and um you know not to say that there aren't some great developers there are mm-hmm. um who do that kind of work but for the most part it's not that good. And the way that policies, you know, work is that all of those things, especially um, the, the, all the, the housing, when all of that's concentrated in one place and it's only the just very low income levels and then all the things that are attached to it, you basically exacerbate all the things 
that you know people like to say that we're trying to work against everything mm-hmm. from low educational attainment to higher um, to to um, you know worse um, health outcomes to you know higher rates of folks being involved in the criminal justice system. Mm-hmm. All those things get concentrated, and when that happens. You find that those those things don't get better. You know, from my understanding, there there haven't been many years since the passage of civil rights legislation that actually said that people could afford, when people who with means who formerly lived in racially segregated communities could actually go and live where they wanted. The communities that were left behind, the poorer folks that were left behind. I don't think there's been many years since then where the black male unemployment rate has actually gone down. Mm-hmm. They haven't. So. The one thing that stays the same is what happens in those communities, and then we wonder why things don't change. And I'm like, well, let's change what happens in those communities. That's real estate development. Mm-hmm. You can't keep concentrating poverty and expect things to be different because they won't. They just won't. We have nothing to prove that that is the case. And I mean, and philanthropy should know this. That after all of these years, more money has been spent, you know, on both not just philanthropy and government programs to help fix these problems, but they've all gotten worse. Mm-hmm. I, I, it's it's insane that folks are not taking that more seriously. So. Tell us a little bit about what the South Bronx looks like now. <laughs> we left off with... Um, Hunts Point Riverside Park. Mm -hmm. What has changed? Mm. How has the community started to Mm. shift? I mean, we've seen it all over um, the South Bronx, which is really interesting because there actually is. So all of the housing has been built back up, and there's Mm -hmm. even lots more coming. What's interesting is that much of the the new housing is a lot of it's totally market rate and actually above market rate or considered luxury, believe it or not. And so that's, that's a really kind of interesting thing to me because I think that there should be more economically diverse communities, not just, you know, either places where there's, you know, luxury housing and then, you know, somewhere in the, in the out behind it in the back is where the projects are. You mm-hmm. know, that I don't think that's appropriate either. Um, we're the type of housing that we're really working on is like the, a, a range of incomes, you know, mm-hmm. but all incredibly good quality, you know, as, as sustainably designed as possible, um, you know, with great open space around it, you know, really looking at what are some of the, um, you know, economic growth trends so that you can create the kind of job creating and business development opportunities all in place so that we can have the kind of thriving, you know, walkable, living, um, workable communities that people want to live in. Yeah. And uh, what, what the South Bronx is right now, and so there's definitely that uh, that movement where there's just still either very, um, you know, luxury housing on, on one end, which is fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. And then there's definitely like um, some folks that are doing just, you know, strictly low income housing. And again, they're all segregated. Mm-hmm. Well, yes, I said it. They're building <laughs> segregated housing in the South Bronx. Um, mm-hmm. And that's not just them either. But the thing that inspires me is that they're all these Bronx born and bred young people, um, mostly millennials. I think I'm like the <laughs> old one out of all of them. Um, at a, that are, have decided to like set up roots and become entrepreneurs and do their business in the South Bronx. Um, so there's this. Uh, dear, amazing woman named Noel Santos, who mm-hmm. um, has opened the Lit Bar, which is, we, the Bronx 
didn't have a bookstore for years mm-hmm. and she decided to open a bookstore slash wine bar mm-hmm. and it's amazing just went to some event there last night um and then there's uh uh rosa garcia who owns the the mott haven bar and grill you know uh let's see of gosh the bronx dandy who's mm-hmm. this like fashion influencer who lives like a few blocks away from me um diego leon and this, there's just a there's me, um, <laughs> you know. I um, own the the Boogie Down Grind Cafe, yeah. which I am convinced is going to be a a brand that's that's going to be as big. It's a hip hop cafe. <laughs> it's going to be as big as like the Hard Rock Cafe internationally. Um, and we're just seeing things like that happen. And so mm-hmm. it's that spirit of of entrepreneurship. And actually creating the kind of community that people feel is really important. We have a young woman also lives a few blocks away from me who um, opened up Sano Wellness, which Sano means um, health in Spanish. Mm -hmm. And uh, she's a licensed acupuncturist, you know, Mm -hmm. has invited in, you know, a certified, um, I don't know what kind of masseuse, but she's really good. Um, (laughs) You know, also from the South Bronx. And Mm -hmm. they're, you know, they're a team and they're working together. Um, A a facialist. I mean, all these like crazy, crazy, wonderful things that are happening. Mm -hmm. And so it's that, like seeing this kind of talent stay and spread it in their own communities. This was not happening Mm -hmm. 10 years ago, five years ago. So for me to see that and to know that there are uh, younger people looking at these fabulous people Mm -hmm. makes me go, wow, this is no joke. Um, And it gives me, it just makes me feel like this is such a beautiful thing. I I love it. It's really neat to see that investment and Mm -hmm. also for you to be able to see the shift. Yes. Um, One of the other things that you do, of the many, many things that you do, (laughs) is work with corporations, Mm -hmm. corporations like Etsy and Fresh Direct and Google and Cisco, Mm -hmm. to work with them and help them be part of the solution when they're coming into new neighborhoods, when they are um, settling in a new community. What does that work look like, and how do you think that these big corporations can actually be part of the solution instead of something that's sort of feared or rejected when Mm -hmm. they're coming into a new community? Yeah, and fear is, is, is the way that they're often perceived and and with good reason I mean it's not like um, I mean there have been many examples I believe of, of um, you know corporations coming in and not caring at all but I feel especially with many of the ones that are that are customer or consumer facing you know where there is you know an issue with them you know how will they be perceived you know it's it's best for them to be thinking about how can I be a really good neighbor and so I feel like for many of them I'll give the example of Fresh Direct was a um, was another interesting one Um, you know I unfortunately I did come in later in the game because I absolutely would have advised differently Um, but they were a company an online grocer that was moving from its current location in in, in one part of New York City and Queens to to the Bronx. I mean, they, they were expanding so much and they were definitely got, um, they were being courted to move outside of New York as well. So when, so the Bronx basically had a space, offered it to them. And I think that's even before they said that they were going to go there, they really should have come to the community and been talking to them at that point, but they didn't. And suddenly it was announced, you know, kind of like the mm-hmm. Amazon deal, right. um, which is, you know, see how that turned out. Um, and, and so because they do use a lot of trucks, no doubt, because that's how they're on like grocery, they deliver, mm-hmm. you know, to um, to people's stores, which we know e-commerce is, is huge. And, and there's absolutely no way it was going to go away Mm -hmm. so but they did something that I think you know in many cases especially around that time we were 
absolutely experiencing food deserts, you know, in, in places like the South Bronx, and they could have delivered to them. And they didn't at the time. And they were told that and they, people were mad that they didn't. And it was like, oh, you're right, we don't. So we did. So our job at that point was to help them kind of figure out, you know, where, where were the common things that they could work together with communities on the ground, community groups on the ground. And it seemed, you know, pretty obvious to us. Number one, they were expanding. So job creation was, was real. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, you know, food access was also really important. And then I thought that they could also do some work on working with, with small entrepreneurs who were who actually would, were selling food and had like a small amount of food to sell, but it could be, since it was e-commerce, it could be on their shelves until it wasn't wasn't there anymore. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it could be a great way for, to get um, small entrepreneurs, food-based entrepreneurs into the, the, the food scene without having to take on distribution themselves. So we thought that was good. Um, and mm-hmm. then also from an energy perspective, they were planning to use compressed natural gas as a fuel as a, because most of them were fairly shorter trips um, so they could do it. And um, so they wanted to do that and they were going to make that happen. So we thought that there actually was an opportunity for them to be here and actually to be a really good neighbor around those three things. Mm-hmm. And it was a really difficult um, you know, time because there was um, – a group of people, not very big, but but pretty loud, um, that were just, just hated them, and there was nothing they could do. But there were also other groups that were like, we want, you know, we we want the jobs. You know, we think that this this food thing could actually be useful, um, you know, for us. And uh, and so basically, it was my job, you know, as the consultant to kind of put a target on my own head, <laughs> so that they could work closely with the groups that wanted to work with them mm-hmm. so that they could, in fact, you know, create hundreds and hundreds of jobs, you know, which actually did happen, um, and, uh, and and also create some kind of, you know, food partnerships, of most of which I've forgotten about, to tell you the truth, because it was a long time ago. <laughs> um, but it was, I think, overall, it was a pretty smart move. Mm-hmm. And, um, but yeah, I absolutely, there were those, you know, to this day, I'm considered public enemy number one by some folks within the social justice industrial complex, because, you know, I disavowed my uh, sustainable roots. And I was just like, no, I think we have to be connected and, and understand that, you know, first of all, I, there is this thing called compromise, you're going, and they're not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, my job is to really try to help them be the best they could be. And I don't even think I was 100%, nowhere near 100% successful, because at that point, I think, there was so much damage and it took such a long time that instead of people coming to the table and seeing like, how can we make these things work? Mm-hmm. Um, and what, what is it that we really need? What is it that we really want? And how can we like make sure that your corporate practices um, are not, you know, infringing upon our rights to actually have a great community? Because the bottom line is like we knew specifically for that job, that place where they located, it could have been, it could have been another waste facility. Mm-hmm. Easily, as of right, could have could have come to that place, and that wouldn't have had many jobs. One, any jobs that anybody really would have wanted, and they weren't trying to use, you know, decent, um, you know, um, low carbon emission fuel or anything like that. They weren't, mm-hmm. and there was there would have been nothing we could do. But instead, there were like all these other benefits, and it's like, how do you like work with companies like that who are interested? And do it in a way that's actually respectful of everybody, because I don't, I don't buy, you know, this idea, you know, and even in this current administration, you know, people are humans, and you know, just because they don't see us that way doesn't mean that we're not supposed to treat them that way, mm-hmm. and um, not to say that you like overlook the things they they do, you don't, mm-hmm. absolutely not, but I don't think that just being really vile 
and, and mean to people just because they've been mean to you is, is a way to actually get anything done. It's just not. Mm-hmm. So you just have to be smarter and figure out ways to make it happen. One of the other things that you work on is working with other communities and other towns and taking these lessons from the South Bronx and applying them to other cities. How applicable do you think that these same lessons that we've learned that you've um, worked on for so many years in the South Bronx, how easy is it to apply that same model to other cities? If there are other cities who are looking to do a similar thing, what are the first things that you would recommend to them? What are the things that people should be thinking about when they're looking at areas of their city uh, um, and saying, I really want to make a change here. I really want to see something different in my community. Yeah. I mean, I think, frankly, there are South Bronxes all over the place, mm-hmm. you know, communities like it. Yeah, I do and too. Uh, yeah. And so in that regard, I think our work has actually inspired a lot of folks, you know, to think about that. But as far as actually literally, you know, working in, in other places, which is super exciting to me because I look, I love New York, but <laughs> it is not the only city in the world. It's just not. And sometimes what? I. I <laughs> Yeah, I know, but you know it's so funny. But we lost a, a bid to redevelop, you know, this uh, amazing plot of land in the South Bronx, five mm-hmm. acres big, former juvenile detention facility that was horrible, and it's gone now. Um, and we put together this team with like more uh, minority and women-owned businesses than for a project of that scale that New York City has ever seen. Mm-hmm. Um, Twelve hundred units of mixed-income housing, mixed-use commercial development, a hundred, a whole hundred units of low-income home ownership. Like, wow, who does that? Mm-hmm. Okay, we were going to, and yeah. uh, and uh, we had two hundred thousand square feet of of commercial space. Most most of it was actually light industrial, mm-hmm. which is the biggest job creator you're going to find. And there isn't a space that big in New York City like that. It would be amazing. And so we put it together, and the city was just not impressed. And they were just like, we basically, they were just not impressed. And they mm-hmm. instead chose a low-income housing project, very low-income housing project, you know, to do to be there instead. And uh, but we took the same exact proposal, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, pitched it, you know, as part of a team in Indianapolis. And we're going to be doing a project very similar to that. Wow! And and it was because folks were kind of looking and watching and going, wait a second, you know, we saw what happened, or excuse me, we saw what didn't happen mm-hmm. in New York, but these are the kind of things that we want to see happen in our towns you know, in the Midwest and mm-hmm. and around the country, so maybe you should be on our team. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I'd like that. <laughs> and you know, we won. And so I think that once we get this out the door um, and start building it, you know, my own poor city will be like, oh, yeah, we should have done it. But, you know, hey, a prophet's never really appreciated in our own hometown. <laughs> I get it. That's fine. <laughs> They'll come soon enough. It's been over 10 years since that first TED Talk that uh. you gave that saw so many (laughs) eyeballs that so many people listened to that were, I think, so much of your fresh passion and energy coming through that energized um, (laughs) everybody who watched it. Um, I'm so curious about when you look back on that time and where you were and what you were looking for when you were describing the South Bronx, when you were describing your home and what you wanted for it and what you saw for it. And now you're sitting here, you know. Down the line. <laughs> oh, it's so funny. Is it? Is it what you envisioned? Is this? Is this where you saw it all going? Yeah, it's funny because I could sort of cringe watching myself. Um, I've seen it t- literally twice 
no yeah really? oh gosh yeah <laughs> i've and, seen it more than that <laughs> no i just no no just no <laughs> but it was really funny but you know it's amazing because yeah the last time i saw it was last year you know the first time i saw it was like early when it happened mm-hmm. and i was just like wow you know it all happened <laughs> it did that's amazing <laughs> so that was like Oh my gosh. So that was super exciting, you know, mm-hmm. to actually see like, oh, I'm watching a story and wait, I am part two. Literally, I'm yeah. gonna give you part two. Um and uh it was You should neat. do that, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I really should. But um, it was super nice. And uh yeah, it is what I wanted and 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 then some, mm-hmm. you know, and I do, I thank God every day because I actually get to see the fruits of my labor. Mm-hmm. And I know that that's something that, that people crave. Um and I get to experience it. So I'm deeply grateful about it. So yes, the South Bronx has absolutely changed. And, you know, and I see that people, uh, you know, experience it in a very different way, mm-hmm. whether or not they know I did it. And I, I, I would actually say that most people have no idea how it all happened. And, mm-hmm. and I think that's good. It, you know, they just assume that, you know, there've always been beautiful parks here because it's, it's been a generation, like literally. Yeah. And, um, and so, it's like, oh, yeah, like, of course we've got national award-winning parks. You know, literally the award sits in the park. <laughs> so it's like, that's the first thing you see. And uh, the Rudy, it's called the Rudy Bruner Award. <laughs> and uh, it's, just, it's just beautiful. And uh, so I think people see things like that, you know, and the fact that, you know, there is like this really beautiful, fancy coffee shop, you know, in our community that hires local people from the community that is, as you know, because we've like, you know, it's an homage to our hip hop culture, and it is absolutely beautiful. And mm-hmm. um, it's like every every barista is a DJ, and it's just super, <laughs> super fun. And, you know, we, we, have, we place a huge emphasis on customer service, so people feel really happy when mm-hmm. they come in. And it's just like, why shouldn't we have something like this here? Mm-hmm. So as I think about, you know, my work, which I actually consider my ministry, you know, as a woman of faith and this is mm-hmm. you know like my job my the two biggest commandments to, to to love god and to love my neighbor you know is manifested in my work mm-hmm. and so for that i feel like even though i was hardly a christian most of my life um you know i i can see it's like oh this is what i've been this was this is what i've been made to do mm-hmm. and and it just it makes so much sense to me right now it really does and it's like wow god thank you for like your patience <laughs> but yeah i was you know i was working so it was all good yeah if you were going to project 10 plus years down the line mm. you're sitting back here again <laughs> what would you what would you say that you want to see what's left to do mm. you know it's so funny is there <laughs> i am um, even when I ran a nonprofit, you know, I, I think you ever hear the term founder syndrome? Yeah. I don't have it. <laughs> I do not. Like, I was ready to go, like, after the first few years because I was like, look, it's, it's set. Like, I did, I did my pieces, now it's on y'all. Mm-hmm. And um, I feel the same way about everything I'm doing right now. Like, mm-hmm. I don't really want to stay in the coffee shop business I but mm-hmm. I wanted to create this space so that people could could actually show that um, community is not just a place it's an activity but yes you do need these great places to do this activity in mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know I want to show that the model for mixed income housing and mixed use commercial development and real estate development and in low status communities is just normal mm-hmm. you know I want to 
show a couple examples of how that's done. And then I'm like, okay, fine. And I think at that point I'll be 65, well, I'm 63, um, 10 years from now. And um, I'll be like, okay, you know, my husband and I, and maybe a dog or two will like be in a boat somewhere cruising. <laughs> and I'll just be like, I'll check back in and I'll be done. Because <laughs> I think at that point I'm like, what else would I want to do? I don't, I just can't really imagine because I think that's that's gonna that's gonna take me some time mm-hmm. that's gonna take some time but I feel like if again if the foundation is such that folks know like okay we there's another way we can do communities that actually is honoring and respectful of the people that are in them and does not assume that they're these they're expendable and that they're never going to be anything my work will be done what gets you excited in the morning oh um, knowing that each day brings me much, like, a little bit closer to seeing some of our our concept ideas come to fruition. And, and, I'm, and I don't say that in any kind of Pollyanna-ish way, because it is hard, you know, it's expensive, and I'm, you know, I'm also obviously a black woman, and which means that things like capital and, and access to it don't flow in my direction the way that they, that, you know, they're, yeah, I don't ever really, ever really wish to be a white man, but sometimes I'm like, this might be a little easier if I were, but, <laughs> but um, you know, I, but I do, but I see the changes, and, you know, and I've certainly have enough people in in my corner who see the vision too and who are working with us as well um you know I've, we're working with one of the most amazing uh architecture and land use firms like, probably in the country uh perkins eastman who's helping us on what uh, it will be a pretty big project mm-hmm. and uh you know just getting it ready for prime time so things mm-hmm. like that i'm just like oh my gosh like i just can't believe this is my life um <laughs> yeah and uh you know, and again, seeing the faces of people that experience the work that I do. I mean, I know that, that it, I don't mean that to sound arrogant in any way, but it's just like, I know we've put smiles on people's faces yeah. and in their hearts and like, and they've said it to me <laughs> and, and it just makes me go, wow. Okay. Like I, my living was not in vain. Yeah. So what keeps you up at night? Oh, the same thing. <laughs> it's like, oh my gosh, I don't want to do anything that's going to make people like, like think that like I haven't done right by them. Yeah. Um, or, you know, what if this doesn't work out? Like, you know, because I've certainly had my share of disappointments. Like I thought when we lost that bid, you know, to do the big project before, I thought I was going to die. Like it was just horrifying you know and one year something really awful <laughs> I mean I knew it was going to happen before it was released to the press but it was released to the press on my 50th birthday oh <laughs> <laughs> and I had to do a lecture on that day in front of about 300 people and I was like oh that takes some inner strength <laughs> I talked about it people were great you know yeah. just like they were like why didn't you get it and like that just doesn't make sense and I was like well you know the city had their own plan and they not my city. Then you found the right home for it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Don't worry, we'll be back. They'll be back. Oh, gosh. Yeah. But, yeah. But then, you know, that's the... And then I have to be, remind myself of, like, you know, scriptures, like, 
don't be anxious about anything because God's got this. You're fine. And I have to go like, okay. And then I, then I do my prayer and meditation and I remember to breathe. Breathing is really important because I don't do that very often. Um, <laughs> and n- not well, unless I actively think about it, which is so strange. Like, you think it's so easy. It's like, no. I, I mean, you do it every day all the time, all the but time. somehow. Sometimes you just don't. You realize, huh? Yeah, It's really funny. Do you have a meditation practice? I do. Of course, I definitely do. So I'll get up and I'll read um, you know, my Bible, and then I'll just like sit back. And it's just like, it's, it's short, but I just breathe in. Breathe in love and peace and exhale peace. And it's just like it's that kind of like kind of cyclical kind of thing. And then I'll, som- I'll sometimes do um, the meta, um, the loving kindness one, mm-hmm. which, which I especially have to do sometimes when people are being crazy <laughs> to me. Um, and it's just like remind myself of like, you know, whose love I mean, everybody is and, uh, and deserves it and wish it on them. And then after a while you start feeling it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was because I was actually... Um, I have a meditation, not degree, but certification. I actually did mm-hmm. a, was I did a yoga teaching training oh, yeah. uh, through uh, um, Kelly Morris, who actually was with Juva Mukti for a long time, mm-hmm. and uh, then went on to her own to her own thing called um, a Conquering Lion. Yeah. So yeah, so I did yeah, and I, I still take it very very seriously, which is awesome. What advice would you give to your twenty something self? Uh, work out more. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, seriously. <laughs> <laughs> um, that would be one thing because, uh, you know, and uh, stress less um, because this, you know, now I'll be 53 this year. And, and I realized that, you know, I didn't don't think I really started taking good care of my body until I'd say about about six years ago. Mm-hmm. And, and it was when I discovered that cause my mom had Alzheimer's that regular working out like every day actually reduces your risk of Alzheimer's by about now the studies show that it's 50% but the study that I first heard was 40% and I was like those are good odds mm-hmm. and literally the next day I started working out and I've lost about 25 pounds you know wow. since then yeah. yeah so I'm pretty very excited about that but I realized that that working out is like this unbelievable like stress producer in, in every single way like if I don't do it in the morning like I can tell the difference in my day. Yeah. Like I literally can tell the difference. Like who, who, who knew? Um, and uh, I think the other thing is just, you know, when people tell you who they are, believe them the first time. That's my Angelou. But so, so true. Um, I realized I'd wasted a lot of time, like looking at folks that were never going to love me or care about things or that I cared about. Um, and I realized that we spend, I think especially as women, we spend a lot of time doing that. And I think that that was one of the worst things in the world I ever could have done. Um, yeah. As opposed, it, it, because what it did was it stopped me from looking at the folks that actually cared mm-hmm. and who were gonna, and who were our natural allies and who really were ride or die. And, and it stopped me. And I wonder like, how, gosh, how many other people did I dismiss because I was too worried about these other folks that you know eventually would do really horrible things to me um and I yeah (sighs) yeah it's a hard lesson to learn it's a very hard lesson to learn but you know you get you're the subject of social media tirades after a while and stuff like that you go oh yeah oh oh, gosh (laughs) I should have learned that back then um don't let them close you know, and again, it's not even, uh, you know, and I could still love people mm-hmm. from afar. 
and uh, you know, don't make that investment. You know, because was, was it Dr. King who said? Uh, I thought it was really funny. Um, he said, "Look, the Bible tells me I have to love my neighbor." It didn't say anything about I have to like them. <laughs> and it was like Dr. King said that. I was like, "Oh, oh wow, yeah, actually, he did." Um, Wise words. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you know, but I think you know, especially since we're here, and this is all like mind, body, you know, green. I realize that so much of what we put into our bodies, and and our minds in particular. You know, it's it will determine how fruitful we are, mm-hmm. and you know, and this is also coming from a woman who literally worked herself into the hospital twice from overworking, and the third time I was wise enough to feel it coming, mm-hmm. and I was like, "This has got to change." No, like I am worth more. Um, I was not put on this earth to like work myself like into this unsustainable rut, that so that I'd be useless to nobody. Like that's just stupid, and. You know, and there, I think there is definitely folks out there who think like you're, that's what you're supposed to do, and I don't think it is. I think that we were supposed to thrive, and you know, be loved and be loving, and that has so much to do with the kind of environment that you build for mm-hmm. yourself and and for others. So, how did you work yourself out of that? How are you able to? work yourself out of the uh, what you had already conditioned yourself into doing with working so hard and working yourself <laughs> um, into the hospital how did you uh, get out I literally it was at the I was um I was running my organization sustainable South Bronx and uh and I I was very open you know to the people that were close in my life mm-hmm. that you know I hated being executive director hated it I mean it was just like this constant like unrealistic expectation you're supposed to do everything with nothing and you know and I was one of those folks I was I treated my staff well paid them more I didn't you know didn't give myself the same um luxury my board didn't feel that it was important to do so because they kind of liked the idea you know of having you know this like wonder woman as a as the head of an organization it like fit the profile and, uh, you know, God forbid they gave me a raise, never did. And it was a really kind of fascinating thing where I actually went through this, this, uh, this program where we were like literally doing like this inner outer, like, uh, mind body work. And, and it just hit me at one point, you know, du- during this, this process. And I can't even remember exactly what it was, but we had to do a mantra which I'd also don't remember, <laughs> but it's something in doing it made me just go, wait, this is wrong. Everything that I'm doing to myself, like it is openly hostile to me. Mm. It is hostile. I am engaging in a hostile act toward myself. Like, why am I doing this? And that's what I just said. I hate being an executive director. And I remember starting dancing around the room, like, <laughs> I hate it. I'm not going to do this anymore. And then I just like, you know, called my board, and the next thing you know, I was like, I'm not doing this. Let's plan for me to be gone in six months. And I was. And it was good for me. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was, it was pretty awesome. But again, it was that moment where I gave myself time to, like, actually think about it um, and, and not judge myself mm-hmm. about just, just saying no. Mm-hmm. I'm done. It was awesome. <laughs> it was awesome. <laughs> and what did life look like after that? After oh, the six yeah. months. Well, um, you know, I started more breathing. 
more exercising. (laughs) Definitely. You know, I started my own um, consulting firm uh, and worked with my husband, and we just we just had a great time. I'm serious. We really (laughs) did. I mean, looking back, I realized we didn't do most things right, but we had a lot of fun. You know, in terms of building our business, but you know, we didn't know any better. (laughs) We really didn't. But uh, you know, I think I still you know had an impact on a lot of people and places and so for that I'm, I am grateful and uh, even now I realize had I done all that if I had a chance to do that over again I definitely would have done a whole lot of things a bit differently um, just in terms of really understanding how to build a business and build my, my brand to, to make it so that it has more way more impact you know than it does right now um, yeah thank you so much for being here <laughs> thank <laughs> you thanks for having me this was so much fun <laughs> this was wonderful <laughs> thank you <laughs>